Hello, everybody, and welcome to another exciting episode of Views on View. My name is Steve Edwards. I am the host with the face for radio and the voice for being a mime, but I am still your host. And I am flying solo today as my co-host, Lindsay, had to bail for a work meeting or something like that. One of those things where it sucks when work gets in the way of fun. But today I am here with Valery Karpov, goes by Val, correct? Correct. Larry, all right. So we're going to talk about Vue and the awesomeness of Vue and Vue 3 in particular. So to start out, Val, why don't you just give us a little background on you and why you're famous and what you work on and what we're going to talk about. Yeah. So hi, everyone. My name's Val. Let's see here. What am I known for? Well, most notably, I'm the maintainer of Mongoose, which is a popular database framework for Node.js and MongoDB. I think it's that. Well, some people have told me that it's the most downloaded uh, database framework for Node, so that's kind of cool. I'm also uh, I also blog at thecodebarbarian.com and masteringjs.io. Early employee at a bunch of different startups, read, written a few books, been uh, been working in JavaScript and Node in particular since about 2012. And uh, big fan of Vue. Been building the building almost everything new and moving old stuff over to Vue since about middle of 2019. Wow, that's a lot. That took about a minute just to describe all that. I remember working my tail off to become a senior developer. I read every book I could get my hands on. I went to any conference I could and watched the videos about the things that I thought I needed to learn. And eventually I got that senior developer job. And then I realized that the rest of my career looked just like where I was now. I mean, where was the rush I got from learning? What was I supposed to do to keep growing? And then I found it. I got the chance to mentor some developers. I started a podcast and helped many more developers. I did screencasts and helped even more developers. I kind of became a dev hero. And now I want to help you become one too. And if you're looking forward to something more than doing the same thing at a different job three years from now, then join the Dev Heroes Accelerator. I'll walk you through the process of building and growing a following and finding people that you can uniquely help as you build the next stage of your career. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. I'm like, my background is, yeah, I've worked in JS for a while and I host a couple podcasts. <laughs> so yeah. Brooke, that's a lot of work and there are a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. I was telling him about ahead of time that I have been getting his Mastering JS newsletter every week and it's always got a lot of good stuff in there. So it's uh, a valuable uh, resource. A bit of a stretch. I've been, well, uh, I've been as good about writing as I oh, okay. but I'm getting better. Sorry, I assume that because it says Mastering JS Weekly. Uh, must not be exactly weekly, huh? Yeah, you know, uh, sometimes marketing doesn't line up with reality. Which is a, <laughs> a very key lesson for people to learn when they listen to, uh, to software marketing pitches. That's shocking that marketing would never equal reality. I, I can't understand that. But so anyway, real quick, uh, what question I have, you were talking about maintaining Mongoose and I've actually used it in the past when I've dabbled in Node. So Mongoose is basically, I think you call it an ORM, is that correct? Or it's your ODM, I guess is the more correct term because it's object document mapper. MongoDB isn't relational. So I guess right. no, okay. gotcha. it doesn't explicitly convert things into a relational form for you. Right. That's correct. Okay. So that's for Node. So is that is that something that has to be ported over to Dino? Are you familiar with Dino? Have you messed with that at all? Or is that something that's not necessary because of the way Dino is being built? So I'm familiar with Dino. Um, I have tried using Mongoose with Dino. The last time I tried was 
probably about a year ago. It's been a while. I don't honestly remember when that was, but all I remember is I ran into a blocker because, so Mongoose uses the uh, MongoDB node driver, the official one to talk to MongoDB. That driver uses um, nodes built in crypto library. And at the time that I was trying to use Mongoose Dino, Dino's crypto library was not compatible with the way that uh, that nodes was written. So the driver just crashed and I was like, well, there's not much I can do about this. So I will, uh, I'll kick the can down the road. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm just curious because like I said, I've dabbled in the back end a little bit, but haven't really, haven't really done a lot of work in it. AJ O'Neill, who one of the panelists on JavaScript job does quite a lot with the back server sides, node stuff. So just always curious, especially as I've listened to, more and more talk about Dino and what Ryan's doing with it from the ground up. So cool stuff. Yeah, no, so, so I guess that's another, uh, that's a little bit of a case where like, you know, marketing doesn't quite line up with reality where, um, so like Dino is in spirit, no JS compatible, but like a kind of like big beefy project like Mongoose uses some things that like that node provides explicitly that like, if you try to rewrite from the ground up, it won't quite line up with the way that Mongoose uses it. I'm sure I wouldn't be surprised if like the Dino team has patched that up by now. And I look forward to giving it a shot at some points in the future. Just haven't gotten around to it yet. Now you wrote, you wrote Mong- Mongoose, I'm assuming when you were working at MongoDB. So um, no, Mongoose has gone through a kind of like a long and uh, long and convoluted story. So Mongoose, like the first commits were actually uh, Guillermo Roch from, uh, right. from JS way back in April of 2010. At that point, he was uh, he was CTO of LearnBoost, which was a K-12 education startup. Let's see. That company pivot, later pivoted, became like a cloud upload platform called CloudUp. And then they got acquired by Automatic in 2015. So the way that things ended up going was uh, Guillermo ended up handing off the project to Aaron Heckman, who at the time worked at LearnBoost. Aaron worked on the project for a few years. And during those few years, he left LearnBoost and joined MongoDB. He, uh, he left MongoDB, I want to say, end of 2013, early 2014, before, before Automatic acquired MongoDB. And in, um, I want to say, middle of 2014, he decided that uh, he couldn't maintain MongoDB anymore, asked on Twitter for someone to help maintain it. Me, I was scrolling through uh, scrolling through Twitter on the air train to JFK Airport, trying to pass the time, and well, mindless scrolling paid off big time. I just was like, I couldn't reply fast enough. I sent uh, sent them a message, took over maintaining Mongoose, and uh, have been maintaining it ever since. At the time, I worked at MongoDB. I kept on maintaining the project um, after leaving. Okay, all right, good stuff. That's yeah. uh, definitely Ben. Source is fun. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of like things where that change hands where strange stuff happens one uh, one kind of interesting quirk from like my early time of uh, maintaining mongoose was i was so i was planning to release mongoose 4 or 4.0.0 on um on a wednesday and on the tuesday before i got locked out from the repo because automatic they had acquired the uh, they had acquired mongoose and they wanted to switch it over to their github org so like the day before i was supposed to release it i uh, i get um, i get locked out from the repo because of an org transfer ouch and they just did it without telling you 
No, they uh, they did not give me any warning, but they uh, they followed up and fixed the situation quite quickly. So that was uh, that was good of them. I think they just like you know they they didn't realize what the time frame was. <laughs> or like, oh, oh, right before the release. Were. So yeah. So did did the release get out? Somewhat yeah, the release got out. I think the next day or two days later. I forget the exact details. Okay. All right. Cool. All right. So let's pivot over to view. Why don't you give us a little bit of history first? Uh, you were telling me uh, before we started about how you got into view, I think, and and how way how you've moved from view two to view three and and so on. So how about a little history there first? Yeah. Oh, can start with uh, with where I first started doing front end JavaScript, which we would have to go all the way back to uh, 2008. I was I was a college kid starting my first dorm room startup, and yeah, we uh, started building uh, building front end with uh, with like prototypes, Scriptaculous, and you know Ajax requests, and all of those um, all those fun little buzzwords from the late aughts. No. So yeah, uh, that was kind of like right when jQuery was pretty new. So like people were still debating like should you use uh, prototype or jQuery? And uh, jQuery ended up winning. We were on the prototype side. Oh, yeah. So I started. So I was working on that. When I uh, when I stopped working on that startup, I ended up getting an internship at Google, where I uh, where my mentor was a gentleman named Mishko Hevery, who um, at the time was just was um what was his role. He was working on like some internal like testability stuff where he uh, he was trying to do like automated calculation of uh, how testable a code base is. I mean, he had that for Java. He was trying to port it over to JavaScript. So I was working on the uh, the JavaScript port as a as an intern. So after that internship ended, probably a few months after that internship ended, actually, I was following Mishko's blog, and he uh, well he had written this framework called Angular. That, that he released kind of like late 2010, I want to say. I basically, uh, I respected, uh, respected Mishko a lot, so I just decided to give it a shot. This was like Angular version 0.9.4. And yeah, I was, I was immediately hooked and I started building everything I could in Angular. So that ended up going from like probably around like 2010 to like 2016. I pretty much did everything in Angular 1. I even ended up Publishing a book on Angular called Professional Angular JS with Wiley in uh, I think 2015. So yeah, Angular had. I really preferred Angular 0.9 to Angular 1. I know that's kind of controversial, but that's like before they introduced the module system, and it was just kind of like a neat way to do two-way data binding as opposed to kind of like all the all the module system and all that stuff that I wasn't a huge fan of in Angular. So yeah, that's, uh, but as um, as it became clear that Angular 1 was not going to be kind of like maintained very well going forward and was kind of like being not exactly deprecated, but kind of like not actively maintained anymore, the team was moving on to Angular 2. I kind of found myself like without a front-end framework for a little while. So I started dabbling with uh, with React, which was the uh, the new hotness at the time, right? I had heard good things about React at some of the JavaScript conferences I went to. I kind of liked the idea of the component tree, but I found myself kind of like wishing I had something that was like a little bit simpler and a little bit more portable. I found myself like looking at cases where, oh, I want to like, I want to like generate an email template. So like I want to, um, I'm generating an HTML email, like a receipt for uh, for my employer at the time. And I wanted to see, okay, well, uh, can I do this in React so I can uh, so I can kind of save myself the headache of having to switch between multiple different templating languages? And it ended up being not as good as I would like. I don't remember the exact 
uh, difficulties that I ran into, probably something along the lines of you know, needing to uh, needing to like have mixed JavaScript and HTML was not something that I really liked. Specifically, what uh, what really got me interested in Vue, kind of like in the end of 2018, early 2019, was the fact that that you can express Vue templates as just plain old HTML. So like I can generate like an HTML template that looks pretty much that you can just open up in the browser as an HTML file. I can have a designer go in and make tweaks to it and like make it look pretty or animate or whatever. And then I can just take that code as long as they haven't removed like the, the actual directives, like the VHTMLs and the curly braces and the V binds and plug it back into uh, plug it back into my code base in there. And now I have like a pretty nice, pretty template that's automatically binded for me, save myself a lot of work. So yeah, around like 2019, it kind of finally clicked. I had kind of tinkered with some projects that involved React and, and Preact as well. And then I just decided, okay, you know, this view thing, it's um, it's a lot better. So I just started working with you around 2019. And yeah, one thing we're uh, one thing we're kind of working on right now is actually porting the mongoose docs over to uh, to using view for templating. So like, ideally by the end of this year, the mongoose docs will um, so all the like uh, all the HTML, all the layout will be in view, and then we'll just have markdown content. And so are you? Well, first of all, yeah, you're you're. Uh... Your journey is, is pretty similar to mine. I won't go into detail because I've done it before, but I, I started out with Angular 1 as well when I first got into uh, JavaScript just because it had come into the uh, Drupal community as a, as a way you, there are ways that you could use it, Angular with it. So I started doing it and taking classes like, uh, I've already forgot the name of the online school that used to have a ton of classes. Anyway, started learning it there, actually did a couple legit projects with it as a contractor. And and then about the time that Angular 2 started coming out, I was looking around and started seeing Vue. It was still when it was still just Evan pretty much by himself. And then just been working it since then. And about a couple of years ago, finally landed my first full-time Vue gig and been doing it ever since then. So very similar path. I haven't really played with React myself too much. I read some code and, and looked at it, but I've just been pretty happy with Vue. <laughs> Even though when you're job hunting, there's a ton of jobs out there for React. <laughs> Not so much view anymore. There but, are. Uh, but so can you talk a little bit about how you use it during your day job, what you, who you work for, or what you do? It's not like a classified top secret, is it? <laughs> uh, well, oh, classified top secret. I am no longer at my day job and uh, I can't really talk about it. But oh. um, I can okay. kind of talk about some of the stuff that we did with view. Okay. So yeah, these days, let's see, these days I'm just primarily working on Mongoose. Let's see here. But things that we worked on at the uh, the day job, well, it was actually a pretty fun little thing. We were uh, we were solving NP-complete problems in Vue. So our my previous employer was a, uh, was a gas delivery startup. And as you can imagine, a gas delivery is kind of like a very generalized traveling salesman problem, where instead of having one salesman, you've got N salesmen. And instead of each point having exactly one demand, each point has like a certain number of demand, like they need like 300 gallons or 500 gallons of gas. And each traveling salesman has like a certain capacity that they can fill. Like one truck has 1100 gallons, one has 500, who knows? So that's um, that's the kind of problem that we were solving. On the back end, it was, um, it was Node with C Sharp and Python. 
And on the front end, uh, the, uh, the, what was responsible for like allowing our dispatchers and um, operations people to, uh, to kind of like configure, configure the problem that the solver was solving was, uh, was all in view. Um, we also did a lot of fun work with, uh, with visualizing that data, timeline views, very sophisticated maps, kind of a lot of, a lot of very fun stuff and a very cool project to, uh, to work on endless, uh, endless possibilities. So we're using Vue 2 or Vue 3 there? We started with Vue 2. We started this project, I want to say, 2019 at some point. And um, we since ended up migrating to Vue 3. All right. So speaking of Vue 3, let's talk about it. So since you've done Vue 2 and Vue 3 and migrated, first off, I guess, why don't you give us what you like and don't like about Vue 3? I'm sure there's, I don't think, you know, obviously any upgrade is not going to make everybody happy. So what are the cool features that you found in V3 that you found yourself using quite a bit? So first thing that I would say I really like about V3 is my answer to my answer to your question would be like, I don't even really, I haven't really seen that much of a difference between V2 and V3, which to me is absolutely delightful. Like uh, Angular 2, like the Angular 1 to Angular 2 switch, I think like a lot of developers have been scarred from that where just, you know, uh, version 1 to 2, they just threw out literally everything even picked a different language. I think like Vue 3, I would say like the two changes that I've, that I've found myself kind of like wishing I had in Vue 2 code bases. Number one is, is the kind of like the change tracking underneath the hood with proxies. I always find myself kind of like forgetting to add a key or something on a, uh, on a, on a nested object. And um, all of a sudden it's like, wait, why is this property not reactive? I kind of ended up losing like half an hour trying to debug that in a Vue 2 code base recently. So what does a proxy for those of us who might not be familiar with it? Yeah, so between Vue, so in Vue 2, how, so let's describe it this way. So in Vue 2, when you set a, uh, when you set a property on your, uh, on your view instance, like let's say you have like a username input and you set this dot name equals John Smith. Underneath the hood, Vue has used, uses object.define property, which is kind of like the ES5 way of tracking changes on an object. So the problem with object.define property though, is you need to list the properties that you're watching ahead of time. So if you if you try to set a property that isn't defined on like the object's data property, Vue won't be able to pick that up unless you were to use Vue use. Uh, yeah, unless you use Vue use exactly, or unless it's listed in the uh, the data object, and then you end up having similar problems for uh, for nested objects. So like let's say you have an array of objects and you set a property on one of those, and you set a new property on one of those objects, Vue won't pick that up. So with Vue three, I think. Since they use proxies under the hood, Vue three will pick that up because um, proxies are a way of are a way of like wrapping an object in a way that you can intercept every single property access on that object, regardless uh-huh. of whether or not it was set ahead of time. Yeah, regardless of whether or not it was set ahead of time, as long as you have like an object, Vue can intercept all set accesses on that on that object, including like setting new properties. In an odd, in an odd change, in kind of like an odd little synergy there. Mongoose, like we're for Mongoose six, we're actually going to be using proxies as well for arrays. We're we're not switching, and Mongoose isn't switching entirely over to proxies. We kind of have our one of the things that Mongoose does is change tracking, right? So you have like you have a document, you do some vanilla JavaScript assignments on the document, you save the document, 
and Mongoose kind of like converts those individual vanilla JavaScript set operations into like a MongoDB update for just those operations, right? So the way that we do that is uh, is with object.defined property, kind of like view 2 style. We're not quite switching over to proxies yet because proxies are still like a little, are still like meaningfully slower than, uh, than using object.defined property. But we are switching over for arrays because um, because one of the things that proxies allow you to do is like you can truly intercept all, up, all in-place updates on arrays. So one thing that you can never do with object.defined property is let's say I have an array. And I want, and I set like array of five equals uh, equals hello. The problem with object.defined property is I would have you would have to uh, explicitly list out every single index in that array ahead of time. So the only way that you can watch a general array would be to basically uh, call object.defined property like whatever the uh, whatever the maximum array index is times, which is a lot. With proxies, it's much easier. You just have, you can wrap an array in a proxy and you can intercept like, oh, if I set array R of four equals hello, I have a proxies intercept that change off of that. So just thinking from a developer standpoint, the ability to add data items on the fly seems pretty useful in the terms of give, giving you flexibility. But I could also see where that could get sort of messy and it would be sort of easy to lose track of things since you don't know, you know, you can see in your data object, okay, I've defined this and this, but I've got this other value that came from somewhere and then you got to track it down in your code. That makes sense. Is that something you've run into? Yeah, that does make sense. It's something that I don't think I have run into. I think it's, in my mind, it's more of just a kind of like an edge case that you don't really have to worry about or let's put it this way, I think of like proxies as removing edge cases that you as a developer now no longer have to worry about. So mm-hmm. if you, so explicitly setting, like if you set a property, now it's, um, now it's reactive is actually in my mind, like benefit because it removes something that removes a potential edge case that could break your code. Mm-hmm. So yeah, let's see. But, so the biggest, I, I know at least in my listening, when, whenever you hear about Vue 3, the big item that most people will talk about is composition API. Yeah. So can you talk about what that is and how it's different from both how it's different from Vue 2 and what its advantages are, both in terms of composition and I think uh, portability? Yeah, portability is, uh, is a big benefit. Uh, let's, uh, let's, let's put it this way, or let's start this off with kind of like a... Uh, a bit of a challenging question, which is in view to how do you uh, how do you add multiple mounted hooks within a single component? Yeah, within a single component. How can you uh, how can you register multiple mounted hooks? Can you? <laughs> I mean, what you would have to do is you would have to modify like you would have to modify the object declaration of the component, right? You would have to kind of like wrap uh, wrap the existing mounted hook and then also add your mounted hook on top of it, right? Right. Something uh, sort of painful. Kind of messy. And so like... Why would you need multiple mounted hooks as compared to doing multiple things within one mounted hook? Plugins, 
basically just the code that um, that's going to register like a uh, going to register like the same mounted hook on a bunch of components. Um, you might think of it as like a logging or a debugging thing, maybe like registering like registering like error handling hooks on every component by default, but then also allowing each component to register their own error handle hook or error handler hook in addition to the one that's registered by default. Does that make sense? Yes, I think so. Sorry. Yeah. So no. Uh, the composition API in my mind is about, so in Vue 2, you only kind of had one pattern for uh, for defining um, for defining component. That pattern was inherently declarative. You, uh, you list out like, this is my mounted hook, this is my updated hook, this is my error handling hook, right? In, a, uh, in an object. And there's no, and the downside of declarative syntax is uh, sometimes composition gets a little bit messy if you have declarative syntax. So with, so with the composition API, you have an imperative way to uh, to register hooks, create methods, and do all the stuff that you would normally do and use declarative syntax. So with the um, so like with the composition API, you have a one setup function that kind of behaves like the created hook in um, in view two. And you and that function lets you actually register multiple mounted hooks. So you just import like you import like a mount function from uh, or mounted. I forget the exact nomenclature, but you import a function from view, and then in your setup function, you can call mounted multiple times to register multiple mounted hooks. Okay, so it's a lot more flexibility. Uh, yeah, it's um it's a trade off because like it's not necessarily as syntactically neat. And it could get like a little clunky, but like it goes back to one of the things that I really like about Vue is that like Vue is very flexible and very portable. There's no like one right way to do things in Vue. The answer is usually like it is in all software engineering. The answer in Vue is like it depends on what your uh, what your need is and what your use case is and what your app setup is. And Vue just generally like gets out of your way and lets you do what you need to do without being overly pedantic and saying, oh, you shouldn't do it that way. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. So... Now, this, talk about the setup function real quick. What is it? I mean, obviously, the name is an indicator of what you're doing. You're setting up things for your component. And that's where you're going to have any data definitions, I believe, in there. Is there anything else new that you can do and set up other than just things that were already in view 2 that were just spread out? As far as I know, no, but I am not... Uh... I could be better versed than the setup API. I'm, uh, I'm far from a pro user of the setup API. I've used it. I can't say I. I can't say I'm an expert on it. All I have is just like my basic understanding and a couple of toy examples. Okay, so another example that I've seen frequently mentioned is how it allows you to combine pieces of functionality for a given feature in one place instead of having to have it all spread out across the different parts of the object definition in a view template. So for instance, if you if within your component you have a feature that has a couple pieces of data, a couple variables that you're going to be using throughout the thing, you have a method, you have a watcher, you have a computed value, maybe and maybe something from a hook instantiation. And so they're spread apart through the computed object 
or the computed member of the object, and then the watcher, and then the methods, and so on. So with this, you're able to sort of combine them into one place. Is that is that an accurate description? Yeah, that's a, that's another neat feature, just co-located code. Like, let's say you have like a method that uses a uh, that uses a watcher, and then a different method that uses a different watcher. Instead of having like a separate section that lists all your watchers and a separate section that lists all of your methods, you can have a section that lists all watchers and methods and whatnot related to this one particular uh, this one particular button. And then there's the um, and then there's all the watchers and methods associated with a different form. Then there's all the watchers associated with some different you know uh, kind of other components somewhere else. Yeah, I can uh, I can see that being a substantial benefit in terms of readability. Yeah. Okay. What about taking a piece of a combined piece of functionality from this component and reusing it in other places? Yeah, you know, basically That's saying you can import it because it's basically JavaScript. Is that an accurate uh, description of a capability? Yeah, that's another neat idea. I haven't read about that one before, but thanks for letting me know. That's oh, okay. Use in the future, I think. Right. You find myself having kind of like reusing the same, uh, a lot of the same logic in different places, and kind of finding like, oh, I'm just importing the same method and just registering it on a bunch of different explicitly registering it in a bunch of different components. So yeah, that could uh, that could definitely help me out. Thanks for the suggestion. <laughs> okay. See, here's another thing that I've read about not needing to use Vuex for state management because of the way that you can handle state management within the Composition API. Something uh, you've worked with? Yes, actually. So I don't... Un- the way that I've worked around that is using provide and inject. Um, I know the view team has kind of like said that you really shouldn't be using provide and inject unless you're writing plugins. But but I love provide and inject for uh, just for working around the whole uh, working around the problem of state management and just avoiding prop drilling and breaking down like top level state into kind of like smaller more manageable pieces of state that smaller components can load in. Big fan mm-hmm. of an inject for that and it seems to work just fine so i'm uh yeah i mean i'm I'm sure there's probably reasons why it's not recommended but i use it all the time so i hope it doesn't break on me so yeah just reading about this real quick so what provide inject allows you to do is uh, i okay i see it instead you know let's say you've got a what do you call it a set of nested components a is the parent then you got b and then you got c and then you got d and let's say you have something in A that you need to get to D and you don't want to have to do the, do the you know, pass from A to B to C to D and run risks of things not getting passed. And so that's why you use state, which is sort of off to the side that says, okay, I'm going to stash it over here from A and then D, come get it from here when you need it instead of passing, the step, passing down stepwise. And so this appears to allow you to do that without state using provide and inject. Yeah, exactly. So what I end up having is like a a top level state object in like the top level component, mm-hmm. and that state kind of has like nested nested objects for different like sub portions. Like um, like we've been tinkering with uh, with building dev tools for Mongoose. So like we have like a uh, we have like a top level object that's or a top level list of models that are registered on your uh, on your Mongoose object. So that is one uh, that is one property in the top level state, 
and that's uh, and that kind of like array is provide or I call provide on that array. So any component anywhere down the tree can say, okay, I need uh, inject for me the up to date list of models, and then they get it without a, without any prop drilling. They can't modify that. I don't think they can modify that array directly, or at least I don't know the particulars of like whether it's whether view protects you from like accidentally modifying it in a child component. But the way you end up modifying it is just like uh, passing events up or just having like some uh, or just having like some kind of like global event bus that kind of propagates um, events back up to the top level component. Okay. Now, so that's a, a fairly specific use case where you have nested components like that, where you can get around Vuex by just using provide and inject, but that's not always going to be the, you might need to pass stuff between components or make stuff available from one to the other where they're not nested. So it sounds like you would still need something like Vuex uh, for cases like that, or maybe there's other functionality I'm missing, but I haven't worked with that. I allow you to do that without Vuex. Yeah, um, that's fair. I mean, in, um, in applications that I've worked with, like it's, it's usually sufficient and better to either have either have something in like either have like state that's entirely encapsulated one component that's like fully local like entering in a form or something like that that is that doesn't go to top level state or anything that needs to be shared between multiple components has to go through the top level state and the top level state's just kind of like broken down by uh, by functionality so like I find like a lot of Angular two apps that I've worked with mostly uh, mostly at the day job end up having um, let's see end up having like that kind of pattern where like Angular two kind of has like you know like you filter down into um, into your RX whatever the what is it like RX store or something like that you kind of like filter down into like this is the for, this is the part of the global state that I'm interested in. I'm subscribing to uh, to RxJS changes on that, and I'm updating, um, and I'm just updating from there. Well, that's so, the whole observable framework. Yeah, is that's like, a lot I mean, different, right? I mean, it's similar in some ways and different in others. I feel like kind of like Angular two, they have like a lot of a lot of stuff that's unnecessary around like kind of the uh, kind of like a fairly simple idea of. We have like this top level state object. The top level state object has like one different entry kind of for each, uh, hard to say like page or view, but something like that. Like I have like a separate top level property for like, this is my like customer list. I have a separate property customer detail. And those, and then kind of components down the tree kind of pull from that top level state. And then when they need to update that top level state, they have propagate events back up. So like whether it's RxJS or like um, or views emit or something like that it doesn't make as much of a difference in my mind. Like the uh, the syntax is definitely wildly different, but I think like the fundamental ideas are fairly similar and applicable using provide and inject at least. Hmm. Okay. How about teleporting? Have you done any use much with teleporting? Actually, I haven't. And. I don't really remember what teleporting is off the top of my head. I think I I've heard the term <laughs> view three. It's a, it's a pretty fun uh, it's a pretty fun name, but I'm not familiar with what it does. And so yeah, I'll read from a blog post here on Smash Magazine that I found. It says teleport allows us to take a component out of its original position in a document from the default app container view apps are wrapped in and move it to any existing element on the page it's being used. A good example would be using teleport to move a header component 
from inside the app div to a header HTML element. Oh yeah, I remember that being something that people uh, recommend using for like modals and something and things like that. Modals, toast messages, where you kind of want to bring the, uh, where you kind of like want to define a modal within. Maybe you want to define a modal within a component, but you kind of want to bring it all the way up to the uh, to like top level, so you don't have to mess too much with Z index. Right. Yeah. And then I yet around with that, unfortunately. And now this one's sort of cool. And it's, it's similar to what you can do with any other sort of templating system in terms of PHP, PHP template or Twig. So those are some cool things. Is there anything you've run into with Vue 3 that you didn't like or that you find difficult to use or maybe hard to comprehend or thought maybe this could have been implemented better or something like that? That's an interesting one. Let's see here. <laughs> I guess like the difference between like ref versus what was the other one where ref versus reactive. I haven't like I found like the distinction to be like a little confusing. I absolutely understand why it's necessary, but like working with those has been a little um, has been a little tricky. Um, I would also say kind of like I do find it strange that the setup function can only get either returns either a data object or a uh, or a render function but can't return a uh, can't return like a definition that includes like a template that's something that I also didn't quite like um, like an yeah. HTML template or what kind of template yeah so um, so you know how like in the in a view 2 or view 3 component you can have just like a template property where here's like a, here's like an inline string of HTML. The setup function, the setup function lets you return. Let's see here. So the setup function lets you re, like if you return something from the setup function, if it's an object, that lets you kind of um, that lets you register basically a data property, or you can return a render function, but you can't return an HTML template or like a, just a plain old string of HTML to use as the template. And as far as I know, there's like no way to register the template property in the setup tag or in the setup function. I might be missing it, but I haven't seen that. So that's something that I thought was maybe like a little bit of a gap in the API that I would potentially like to see build. I haven't really felt like too much of the pain of not having that feature. But I feel like it's some, it's a case where they're kind of giving preference to render functions over uh, over HTML template strings. Okay. Now, are you a TypeScript user? Nope, I am not. <laughs> okay. Rather, I have used TypeScript. I support TypeScript bindings, um, but I do not develop my own apps in TypeScript. Controversial, maybe, but strong personal preference, shall we say. Yeah, anymore, it seems like it's almost heretical to say you don't use TypeScript in JavaScript. <laughs> That's Slight bit of an exaggeration there. I've been, but, uh, been heretical in JavaScript before, and uh, odds are it will be, uh, it won't be the last time, right? <laughs> odds are I'll be commit heresy against the, right. um, the JavaScript mainstream in the future as well. So Now, I know that the, the core itself was written in TypeScript, and that doesn't mean you have to use it. It just was there. And so in terms of your type hintings, and a lot of gives you some IDE functionality to help you list your options and your types and what's what can be passed in and out and so on. And from those that actually use TypeScript regularly, I know that it's supposed to be much easier to write view components in TypeScript. I know I've tried it in Vue 2 in a couple of limited cases, and it was 
it was sort of painful. If you look at how you would write, at least in Vue 2, how you would write a component versus how you would do it with TypeScript, there were some pretty significant differences <laughs> in code structure and things you had to wrap yourselves in. So, so yeah, it was difficult. But I do know that that's one of the big things that even if you don't use TypeScript and you are using an IDE, having the core itself written in TypeScript does give you some, some good hinting and, and other tools that'll help you in, in writing your code. Yeah, yeah. Having good TypeScript bindings is, uh, is pretty neat for um, for how to put it for autocomplete in the um, in VS Code. Um, right. Thing that we so in Mongoose 5.11 in December we actually introduced like our own kind of like home baked TypeScript bindings. The uh, mm -hmm. the code base itself is in vanilla JavaScript, but now we also maintain like a, a big index.d.ts file that kind of describes like how you should call Mongoose functions. Um, it's been uh, it's been a little bit tricky in a lot of ways, just because like a lot of um, a lot of mongoose functions are truly meant to take any as a parameter, and uh, they're uh, they're not, <laughs> or rather, and some people find that to be strange because that doesn't give you like the same amount of autocorrect as some would like. So like I find myself th these days using kind of like more union types where I say like this is probably this is kind of like what you should probably call this with, or like this is what the uh, this is what the properties this object should probably can or should expect. But you can also call it with any, and Mongoose will handle it anyway. So just add like pipe any. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. Now, one of the things you mentioned earlier in comparisons with what happened with Angular is that you know whereas Angular totally trashed Angular one to start over from scratch with Angular two, Vue didn't do that. So anything you write, and basically any if you even if you're using Vue three. You can write view two code and it's still going to work. And more I or less, there are a few. Uh, there are some changes that, that like almost every view code base will have to make. I think like so, like even if you're writing vanilla, like just vanilla JavaScript components with like no uh, no SFC syntax or anything like that, there are still a couple of changes. Kind of like most notably that like instead of like have instead of all components being globally scoped, they're scoped to like a view app and you have to do like view.create app and then register components on that app. And then also like components or view instances no longer have like a dollar mount function, but top level apps have a mount function without the dollar. So that's kind of where a lot of the changes that I've had to make with view three are because like the way that I often end up writing view, like I don't really end up I haven't really written very many sophisticated single page apps with Vue, but I end up using Vue for like a lot of kind of a lot of kind of like smaller use cases. Like I mentioned before, um, email templating is one place where I've used Vue quite successfully. Um, I also use it very heavily for uh, generating static sites. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the to-do list items for this year is kind of uh, move my blog off of Pug and onto Vue for templating. Just mm. because like views, like I mentioned, like the fact that view templates are can be just HTML is really huge for me. And the fact that view kind of like makes um makes what you call uh, makes server-side rendering in node just extremely easy. It's like it's like a five-liner, just given um given an HTML template, give it some properties, um, import view server renderer, and you're uh, you're done. Oh, so you're just using view and not something like Next? No, I primarily just use Vue directly. Sometimes I don't even use Vue Router. <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay. 
so yeah, I, I think like one of the reasons why I wrote uh, that like really got me into Vue is that like I can use Vue without using like 30,000 other packages and it's still actually useful. <laughs> just inside, so you just start with like an index HTML and import Vue from CDN or are you using like a, you know, something yeah. like Vite or Webpack or? Sometimes from Webpack. On the server side, it's usually just, um, I have Vue in my package.json, I npm install it. I pull in an HTML file, add some props, and render a uh, just render an HTML file like that. Write it to a file and ship it on like uh, ship it to Netlify. Mm, okay, so is that what you use for like the Mastering JS newsletter? Uh, let's see. So the Mastering JS newsletter is just um, it's on <laughs> it's in review, <laughs> which is uh, which is a mailing list product, not at all related with Vue.js. Oh, okay, it's spelled the same way: R E V U E U E. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so the newsletter is in a separate um, is in a separate setup. Mastering JS, we're in the process of migrating over all of our HTML templating to Vue because thus far, for the last couple of years, all of our HTML templating has just been um, ES6 template literals. So like, I just have like uh, you'll look at like how how Mastering JS generates like a tutorials page. I have a markdown file, and then I have a uh, I have a function that returns a uh, HTML string and takes in some properties. So oh, okay. like, lots of uh, lots of bloated template literals. I, but in hindsight, I would have rather just used the view for that. And I would like to, I'm going to do that going forward just because hey, the fact that view template literal or that view just supports more or less plain old HTML is great because then I can have a separate HTML file and then just load that HTML file and pop it into a uh, pop it into a view component. So like, I don't need any special syntax highlighting. I don't need anything. Um, I don't need anything extra. Like I don't need anything crazy for GitHub. GitHub will just support HTML templating already if I choose to edit in line. If I open up a new code editor that, uh, that I've never used before, odds are it'll have HTML templating as well. So like it just makes it much easier to work with instead of having some sort of specialized syntax. Nice. I like that flexibility. I like that flexibility. So anything else you wanted to cover about Vue 3 before we move into picks? Let's see here. No, nothing uh, Nothing in particular. Hmm. Okay, good. So with that, we will indeed move into picks. Hey, folks. I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. And me being the host with the most, I will go first and give Al a little time to get his books picks put together. <laughs> so I will start with my new tradition that everybody's clamoring for the dad jokes of the day. And I had them all lined up here on my phone. So we will start with, pause, pause, pause here. Question, question for the day. And this is sort of humorous considering what's been going on lately in the Middle East. 
And it's, the question is, why are they called territorial disputes and not ground beef? You get it, the beef over the ground. Anyway. <laughs> good. Very good, very good. And then what, who, excuse me, who is the patron saint of homeless dogs and cats? Saint Ray. Get it? Stray, Saint Ray. So moving on from there. Pretty good. Yes. So one of the questions, one of those general life questions that I have had over the years, and I've often asked people, and many people never really had a good answer, or actually they'd tell me yes or no, but they weren't sure, is do sheep shrink when it rains? You know, because they're covered with wool and gets wet and wool shrinks, supposedly. But I don't know. Do I found No. And I found a video that answers the question. It's by an organization called, uh, the, the YouTube channel is called Minute Earth. And the name of the video is Why Don't Sheep Shrink in the Rain? And so it goes in great scientific detail discussing the fact that when, when you put wool in the dryer, it has to do with the friction between the hairs rubbing together and how that causes things to shrink. Whereas when they're standing out in the rain, you don't get that friction, so therefore you don't get the shrinkage. So it's a very well put together video and answers, again, one of those pressing life questions that I'm sure many people have had over the years. So with that, I'll go over to Val. Do you have any picks for us? Yeah, first uh, first link I am gonna drop. I've been working hard on view tutorials over the last few years. I'm at masteringjs.io slash view, so check them out. They're more focused on using Vue just as a just by itself without much in kind of like a portable way without much focus on building as like a no 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 tutorials on like how you build a full stack app with Vue but more tutorials on how to use Vue for this small edge case or how do you uh, or how do you do this one little thing with Vue so check it out I'm sure it'll help make you more productive with Vue the other another uh, another pick let's see. Earlier this year, I I started taking Sundays off from coding entirely and I picked up a series of books that has really kind of like I've become completely addicted to. I don't think I've been so hooked by a series of books in like maybe even since Harry Potter. I don't know. But uh, this gentleman named Will White, W-I-G-H-T, the Cradle series. There's uh, there's nine books so far on the 10th and 11th and 12th coming out in the future. Really, uh, really entertaining read. Just uh, great, uh, got like great martial arts fantasy mix. That's uh, that's really fun. So let me drop uh, and just type that out for you, just so you have the uh, so you have the link. Yeah. Big okay. Fan. Very fun read. Yeah, we'll drop a link to this series in the show notes. Yeah, I finished reading the first nine books in like three months, and I uh, found myself very disappointed that the that the tenth one hasn't been released yet. Oh, okay. Sort of like. Waiting for the guy to write the next series in Game of Thrones. He was waiting and waiting. And... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I guess like, yeah, I don't think, it, I definitely have not been as hooked on a, uh, a series of books since at least the first time I picked up Game of Thrones in 2013. I still remember I, um, so when I first started working at MongoDB in August of 2013, that was also the first time I picked up a Game of Thrones book. So over the course of my first five months at MongoDB, I read the first five Game of Thrones books, just taking the uh, the train back and forth from uh, Jersey City, New Jersey to uh, Times Square, Manhattan. <laughs> yeah, those commutes will give you a time to read, that's for sure. Yeah, that's for yeah. sure. Now I've just started taking Sundays to uh, go to the park and read. Yeah, you got to have the day off, that's for sure. That's for sure. Alrighty, so if people want to get in contact with you or help you out, where can they do that best? 
Um, you can find me on GitHub, the Carpob15. Be like the first letter of my first name, Carpob, like my last name, at one five. Or you can find me on Twitter at code underscore barbarian. Um, all righty. We'll drop those in the show notes as well. All righty. Well, thank you for coming on to the podcast today, Val. You can find this episode and past episode at devchat.tv slash views on view. If you want to yell at me about how bad my dad jokes are and how I need to get better jokes, you can reach me on Twitter at wonder95github.com slash wonder95 as well. So thanks everybody for being here and we will talk at you next time. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.